Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark. Happy New Year. We are a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode of the first of this new year recorded on Sunday, January 10th, 2021. Good evening to you. I am Greg from Philly, your host this evening, joined as always by Dan Schaefer. Hello, Greg. How's it going? Very awesome. Our Alliance Party Chair for Missouri. And uh, we are, we're kind of suspending the normal format for this show, uh, as I'm sure 99% of our audience is aware. We had kind of uh, a really watershed moment, I think, is how we're going to look at it. Uh, I call it a disruptive event, but yeah. Disruptive event, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the insurrection at the United States Capitol last week. It was uh, shocking, but not surprising. If you'd if you'd followed sort of the rhetoric leading up to it on the on the right wing side of the aisle, particularly from the president, some of his supporters in Congress, some of his supporters in the conservative media. So, given everything that happened, uh, I think we're just going to take this episode to address it from our perspective. Uh, you know, both personally and, and as members of the Alliance Party, um, I guess the the podcasting voice of the Alliance Party, such as it is. All right. Um, Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I, I think it's it needs to be done. I think every American, every American needs to condemn this. Is my is my view. It's so antithetical to the health of our democracy. Yeah. To have an event like this, to see an event like this as acceptable or normal or desirable, um, we just, I mean, I want to take the opportunity to, to just kick things off by, first of all, condemning that kind of violence and attempted overthrow of the Constitution in the strongest possible terms. Cannot be overstated enough how inappropriate, destructive, disgusting, and absolutely unpatriotic that was. I don't think there's enough adjectives to describe it, honestly, my feeling. I, well. I could feel myself running out of them as I try yeah. to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's really interesting was uh, back in, okay, I'm going to give my age away here. It was back, I think it was 1989. No, it's actually 80. Ooh, wow. It was actually in the early 80s when Reagan was president still. And I did a tour of the White House back then, and they were uh, there's a lot of scaffolding all over the place outside the White House, and they were peeling back some of the layers of paint on the outside. And above one of the windows, there was a scorch mark. It was a burn mark. And the tour guide told us, you know what that soot is from? And I'm like, no, it couldn't be. Yeah, it was from the War of 1812 when the, when the Brits marched in and took over the White House. And uh, for a brief period of time, it's really strange how they got scattered after that. A tornado actually came through Washington, D.C. and scattered them. But um, but they burned the White House, and that soot mark was still there underneath all those layers of paint. And I thought to myself at the time, wow, that happened so long ago. That could never happen again. And uh, if it does, it's never going to happen in my lifetime. Eh, wrong. Okay. So, I mean, they didn't burn the White House. They actually didn't, didn't, didn't even storm the White House, but um, they stormed the Capitol building and they did a lot of damage. And people, 
were killed and people were injured. And I think overall the whole country was injured. And um, it, it just, it, it, I'm still grappling with the significance of this moment. And I know that they said, uh, I forgot which um, congressman said this. He said, this is a day that'll live in infamy or compared it to um, the day, the, the um, December 7th of 41. Um, I don't know if it's quite that significant. I don't know. What do you feel about that, Greg? Uh, oof, I guess history is written by the victors. I think how yeah. this yeah. how this day is viewed is going to determine largely on the response to it, um, whether essentially it's allowed to stand or if the people responsible, both the uh, non-political class, non-media class, and the political class that were involved pay the consequences for their actions or if they are sort of swept under the rug, allowed to move on, allowed to continue to uh, foment support for these anti-democratic causes that they've got. Mm -hmm. If, I mean, you know, it's, it's not inconceivable, right? That, that, you know, for instance, Trump could have gotten a second term. Uh, possibly even legitimately. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it certainly wasn't a sure thing that, that Biden would win. Uh, right. Certainly for me, looking on on the sidelines, it wasn't certain to me that his efforts to overturn the election were not going to be successful. Yeah. Certainly, I feel like he and a lot of members of Congress were playing as if it were going to be successful. Yeah. Uh, they kind of went all in on it. Uh, McConnell tried to... to pull back and shy away from it at the last moment. But if you look at his actions and rhetoric over the last, not even just four years, eight, 12 years, mm -hmm. uh, it all feels like it's kind of been leading up to something like this. Mm -hmm. um, I, I certainly am not, not saying that uh, Senator McConnell had any of the, the violence and death in mind necessarily, but I think it is a fairly, uh, a fairly likely outcome to some of the things that he's done and said, as well as other Republicans in Congress have done and said. Holly uh, and Cruz, the most recent examples, but certainly not, not just them. And I, I think it's also an example of, or it's an extension, I should say, uh, to your point, it's an extension of efforts that have been taking place for a long time. I mean, look at mm -hmm. the the amount of gerrymandering we have. Now, I know the gerrymandering wor gerrymandering works in in for both the Democrats and the Republicans, but um, it does work to help minorities secure rule, right? And uh, and the the uh, the binary sort of voting mechanism we have, either Democrat or Republican, uh, and there's really both parties. Uh, try to shoo out, you know, different, you know, third parties, you know, and, and make it very difficult for third parties to even get their message out. And we can go on and on about, you know, how that, uh, how, how those uh, mechanisms have affected the mentality of average Americans. But, um, but yeah, to your point, I mean, McConnell was doing what was logically uh, a logical progression of efforts for a very long time to secure power and in fact, they use the word power a lot. I know Lindsey Graham used the word power. I hope you guys never get the power is what he said uh, when he was screaming about, uh, I think it was the confirmation of um, 
Supreme Court yeah. justice. And so um, in my mind, it's like, that's really the wrong word to use. It's not getting power. You know, it's, it's the ability to run the institution of government for the common good of everybody. And so their focus is on power. And, and if you're in power and you want to maintain power, you will do so and you will employ any mechanism that you can, even leveraging the electoral system that we have in order to maintain that power. So, yeah, I think what you say is it's perfectly, perfectly reasonable that, that Mitch McConnell, of course, at the last instant, he turns doesn't about face as and, and so does Ted Cruz and all the all the other you know rats that are abandoning the ship here because they realize this thing's going down and they need to find they need to find a life raft at this point. But, um, yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. I think Cruz is a, an example. There are a handful of people. Uh, I think Cruz is one of them that still see. Uh, the passions that drove that mob mm-hmm. as a potential vehicle for their own personal political ambition. Yeah. Which, I mean, if five people dead, colleagues that you work with every day, cowering in fear, needing to blockade themselves inside the congressional chambers with literally moving furniture in front of doors, mm-hmm. uh, I have a difficult time imagining what more could be done to <laughs> to demonstrate the the risk and peril of such a double-edged sword uh if that didn't do it for him and uh, if that didn't do it for senator hawley and, and a few of the other republicans who are doubling down and entrenching themselves right now mm-hmm. i have a difficult time imagining what what could possibly change their minds mm-hmm so, yeah. you know, if they're allowed to persist and are kind of forgiven and it's never really addressed, I could see this sort of fading into the background for a significant number of of voters and politicians. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it'll still remain relevant to a lot of people for a very long time, mm-hmm. but it might not be the national tragedy, to your point earlier, that, that the Pearl Harbor attack was. But yeah, yeah. I don't think it's unreasonable to throw it on that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly not in the scale of death, but in terms of the the significance or potential significance to the American mindset, I think this should be a wake up call. Uh, it should be a cautionary tale that is not forgotten. But I I don't necessarily know that that will be, or that if it is, that the the relevant lessons will be similarly interpreted by the various political perspectives involved. I don't know. I think you have to, I, I, I see your point. And I think you, it's too early to tell. I think you have to sort of let this this thing play out a little bit more and see what direction it heads in. Because, um, I mean, think of the Civil War. You had a situation where states broke off, formed their own confederacy. Uh, one of the first things Lincoln wanted to do as the Civil War was coming to a conclusion, and, and he alluded to it in his Gettysburg Address, was to uh, reunify the country, just to heal the country. But I think the country went a lot further, and its, its wounds were a lot deeper at that point. So he saw this as an opportunity, or, or as his duty, perhaps, to heal the nation. And it might be too early to heal. I don't know. I hope it. I hope it's not. I hope we can heal this thing. And I think a lot. There's a lot of. There's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of 
injuries already that need to be addressed. And perhaps part of this healing process is to never forget, you know, and, and, and make sure that, you know, when, when, when Biden takes office, that he doesn't forget. You know, and I think, yeah, I think his predecessor, uh, Obama, uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, one of the the biggest mistakes he made, and I, 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 I know my wife is tired of me of hearing me say this, but I think one of the most biggest mistakes he made was to not hold those accountable for the financial disaster. And instead, um, he said, well, we're just going to heal the nation at this point. And so nobody who was responsible for this financial crisis went to jail. They all got rewarded. They all got the money, right? And, and they all got bailed out. And meanwhile, Main Street didn't get bailed out. Wall Street gets bailed out, but Main Street didn't get bailed out. So I think that they're, you know, part of the healing process is to look at what happened and who was responsible and enforce the rule of law. You, know, you don't want to be draconian about it or anything like that, but you do have to make sure people understand what really took place and what happened and, and never forget. I mean, how can you heal if you don't treat the wound? You know, this is a, a live infection in the body politic. Mm -hmm. And we need some antibiotics. <laughs> yeah. There needs yeah. to be there needs to be some some cleaning, some suturing. Uh you you can't just like let a broken leg heal without doing anything to it. Healing is not ignoring it. That's not healing. You gotta right. work through. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And and um yeah, I I okay. Yeah, so then, so let's let's talk about what got us to this point. I mean, there's um, there's the people that stormed the Capitol, and I'm I'm watching these interviews with these people, and I'm just shaking my head in disbelief. How could they have gotten so far away from the reality? How could they? You know, it's, it's I know it's it, people talk about QAnon, they talk about Fox News, the the media, and so on. How did this happen? How did how did people get so far out of touch that they think that they are righteous, that they are patriots for storming the Capitol? Sort of a rhetorical question, actually. It's 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 difficult to imagine, but I think if you if you are in sort of what I would describe as a right wing media bubble, and that's the news that you trust. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's entirely plausible to see yourself as being cast as the hero in a a grand narrative about saving the country from these evil people or cheating and stealing from you. If it never occurs to you to question the veracity of the things that you're being told, sure, uh, maybe some of that's plausible to you, but you should check the veracity of that kind of thing mm -hmm. and uh that that you don't doesn't absolve you of responsibility especially when the information that it's essentially a big lie mm -hmm. is so overwhelming and in your face and you know the president doesn't believe it when his own people tell it to him to his face but you should you yeah. know yeah Clearly, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a, a mental health professional or anything of that nature, but I've I've dealt with enough people who who suffer from some uh, mental disturbances like narcissism. Mm -hmm. There's clearly something wrong with the president. His behavior is not 
rational right. in certain circumstances. Um, it's it's apparently his own people were a little disturbed at his reaction to the capital invasion itself as it was happening. He was watching and apparently seemed very excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's not normal behavior for a president or a person, especially when people are being killed. Americans are killing Americans and you're excited about it as the president. That's weird. I do think there is something wrong with him. I couldn't begin to speculate what exactly it is or how severe it is, but I do think there's something there. Mm -hmm. I don't know what excuse his tens of millions of supporters have at Mm -hmm. this point. Um, You know, if there are some issues that are more important to you, and that's why you're supporting him and supporting the causes of some of his his supporters in Congress because you value one issue over all of the negatives that may come with them. I can understand that, but I think that's definitely a choice. And, you know, you can be held accountable for choices. Well, and I think that there has to be something that motivates a normal person to become so channelized in their in their thinking that they will uh, ignore any information to the to counter what they've uh, counter what they believe in I'm always reminded of of um, it was at the 1930s I think with Orson Welles when he had that radio program War of the World and a lot of people were taking it was a radio play. You probably know the whole story, right? There was there was a it was it was a radio show, and it was about the invasion of Earth from these beings from Mars. It was based on a uh, uh, an, a novel. Um, oh gosh, uh, Alex, no, what was his name? The guy that wrote that novel, War of the Worlds, back in the eighteen hundreds. One of the first science fiction you know things uh, stories out there. Um, Gosh, every time I get on the air, I forget these names. But anyways, <laughs> uh, it, I believe it, you're looking for Orwell. No, well, no, it was uh, no Orwell. But this is way back. It was written back in the 1890s. It was uh, War of the Worlds. Uh, but anyways, the premise of the whole story is that the world is being attacked by these aliens from Mars. And so they did a radio show about this with Orson Welles back in the 1930s, and people were tuning into this thing and they didn't realize it was a radio show because they came in in the middle of it, you know, before the commercials played and everything. They start listening to these news reports about about these strange beings that are landing on Earth, you know, and, and they're coming H. out and they're G. eating Wells. people. H.G. Wells, there you go. Yes. And um, thank you. Uh, now that you say it, it's like it's obvious, right? But, uh, you know, people are listening to this radio station and, and and they wouldn't listen to another station. You know, some people would tune into a different station and say, well, it's got to be in another station somewhere, and, and another station is playing music or, you know, talk or whatever. And, and they immediately turn back to the station they were on saying, oh, these other guys, they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't gotten the news yet. The news is right here. So they turned back to the radio station that was running this show. And people panicked. I think some people were actually killed in this process um, because of panic. And I think that sometimes, you know, when you um, – I've experienced this myself one time. My, my car, I thought my car was stolen. I walk out the parking lot after work one night, after working a whole day. My car is gone. Like, oh, my God. And I start running around like, oh, I got to call the cops. I got to go. And I, and I finally just stopped, took a breath and said, wait a minute. During lunch, I took it into the garage. and <laughs> I have to go walk up there and get it now. And, and so when you get when you get fear in you, um, 
your your focus becomes very narrow. And I think if you were to read this book uh, called Let Them Eat Tweets, I've been talking about this quite a bit lately from Jacob Hacker and, and Paul Pearson, it sort of clarifies in my mind what, what might be happening is that the fear is being stoked out there. We are under attack. We, we have this caravan coming up from Central America. We need to build a wall. Um, immigrants, um, you know, racial, racial issues are coming up. Um, and people get scared. And they tune in to just one channel of information. And that channel continuously reinforces this message of fear and this message of, of not only fear, but follow me, I'll lead you out of the darkness. You know? And that's the role that, that Trump very comfortably fit into. And so um, I think that's it's the only phenomenon I can, I can use to describe it, that these people are so consumed with the message now and so consumed with with this, with this enlightened person who's going to lead them out of darkness, that they will do anything. Right? Attacking the capital is is small potatoes. They got to get it done, because it's the survival of the nation. It's it's, you know, the Democrats have been portrayed as being child molesters and they drink children's blood. They do all kinds of satanic rituals and so on. Hey, if you're not listening to anything else, and if your fear is keeping you from listening to different channels of information. That's the outcome. And you got someone like Trump who very comfortably fit into that role. And all the sycophants that, that they may not believe the message, they may not have that same fear, but they're using it to their own advantage. The Mitch McConnells of the world, you know, the, uh, all, all, you know, the Josh Hawley's. Uh, yes, I'm from Missouri, but I did not vote for Josh Hawley. Make that straight. Uh, but all these people become enablers because they're getting something out of it. They're not getting the, the relief of fear out of it, but they're getting what they want out of the situation. So they will use it to their advantage. Yeah. That, that fear can make people do uh, almost anything. Fear claims of authority. You know, it all kind of goes together. Um, I, I wasn't able to finish it, but uh, I did pick up and start the cult of Trump mm -hmm. uh, book, which kind of uh, draws parallels to some of the, communication techniques that notable cult leaders use that Trump, and in fairness, not just him, other politicians too, but certainly mm -hmm. he's the most successful. Uh, fear, repetition, uh, claims to sort of a, a special knowledge or special skill set that's unique and mm -hmm. uh, life-changing, that they are what is needed to, to sort of be the saviors of the moment kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, making the supporters and true believers feel privileged and special for being a part of it, requiring absolute loyalty and having that be sort of the gold standard of currency in their group. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these things can kind of reinforce on one another. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, he, it's not, it's not people trapped in a basement, you know, they have access to everything that, that media, Diet is a choice. Willfully ignoring facts is a choice. Yeah. And, you know, part of me still wants to try to put myself in their place. If I really did believe, you know, that uh, there was widespread election rigging and fraud, which there wasn't, and there's was mm -hmm. no indication that there is, you know, if someone had stolen the presidency or, and stolen all the levers of government in some illegitimate way, you know, what would be the appropriate response? 
Right. Storming the you Capitol, know. perhaps? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, if if the if the Constitution isn't going to work anymore because no one is playing by it, then you might get desperate enough to be put into that position. But we're so nowhere close to that. Yeah. And it's so obvious that that's not the case. Yeah. That I, I have a very difficult time, you know, giving credence or or a sincere belief to those claims. Mm-hmm. Um, seems much more likely that it's just a cover for doing what the leader asked you to do. Well, like I say, everybody's getting something different out of it. Um, the general public, the, the the people that stormed the Capitol, they're getting something out of it. They think they're doing, you know, patriot work. Politicians getting something out of it. They don't. They themselves won't storm the Capitol. But they'll stoke the flames. I mean, there's this picture of Josh Hawley out there before the Capitol was stolen, or before the Capitol was stormed, and uh, he's walking in to the session, to the legislative session, and he's giving you know a raised fist to the people that are outside looking in, the people who only an uh, hour or so later stormed the Capitol. You know, so he's getting something out of it. He doesn't buy into that fear. I'm pretty sure. But he's getting some out of it. He's getting power out of it, right? And so that's what motivates him. So, yeah, I believe, you know, people should have different um, access or access to different information. And this kind of dovetails into another discussion about the Fairness Doctrine. Um, not sure if you're aware of that or what, what it is, but it, uh, and I'm I, only... I am, but we should... No, go audience. ahead. Okay. Yeah, I'm only dimly aware of it myself uh, in the sense that I haven't, you know, spent a whole lot of time studying it. But it is basically at its heart, it says anytime anybody gets uh, airtime for a political statement, that an equal amount of airtime must be given to an opposing view. And that was implemented back in, I believe, when radio first started coming to play, you know, when the FCC was coming to life. And um, and it actually went a little bit further than that. It said that uh, you know because the uh, because the radio spectrum is a is a public resource, um, our government said to the, the private broadcasters, okay, you may broadcast on this frequency, and nobody will you know try to broadcast over the top of you. It will make sure that you know that that you have access to this frequency, but you must pay back the people because this is a public resource. You must have one hour a day that you devote to um, the public, to public, um, to shows that benefit the public, i.e. the news, without commercials, right? And the part of without commercials disappeared pretty quickly, but uh, but the fairness doctrine was part of that deal, and that was just slowly unwound underneath. I, I like to pin a lot of things on Reagan, but um, I think this one's pretty fair to pin on him and his administration, they unwound this whole thing. And so now you have these channelized, on-the-air public resource, using our public resources, on-the-air channelized information that doesn't provide uh, a different point of view, doesn't provide any sort of check and balance on these uh, these people like Rush Limbaugh that just, you know, go on and on about, you know, what, what, their, what their righteous topic is for that particular day. Um, 
And that's, I think that's also hurting. What do you think about that? I, I want to love it on paper. That's uh, slightly before my political coming of age. I, I think mm -hmm. by the time I started paying attention to politics, that had already been uh, long dead and Rush Limbaugh was in ascendancy. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the only media environment that I've known. I, I know it's not good. I don't know, honestly, how much credit the Fairness Doctrine deserves. Considering that if you if you take that premise to its logical conclusion, uh, if you have if you have people on that say we shouldn't be storming the Capitol, does that mean we have to have people on that are? I, I don't think there's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, meeting in the middle is not always the best place to be. Sometimes the, the truth is not, in fact, in the middle of two opposing views. It's mm -hmm. more likely on one side or the other, uh, but not all the way. Yeah. No, I don't I don't think that we need to be promoting sort of this uh, this both sides ism, which in a lot of ways is still alive and well in the media, just in extremely unhealthy forms. Mm hmm. I don't know exactly what the answer is there. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to say that. Uh, <laughs> let's let's uh, let's honor the Constitution and free and fair democratic elections versus let's have a violent overthrow of the government should be given equal airtime and equal platform. Mm -hmm. That yeah. doesn't seem great. But there are certain topics where it does make sense, like, say, some kind of uh, industrial regulation or environmental reform or tax issue. Those mm -hmm. things all seem reasonable. You should have a, a for and against for that, like you do in your, your voting information packets, for instance. And I think that's healthy. Yeah. But I don't think that applies to everything. Yeah. I forgot and about one that. One thing yeah. I'd love to know, Dan, mm -hmm. do you recall a time when ads were not on the news no that was before my time i was um i'm old but i'm not that old um but no i mean i honestly didn't start watching the news seriously until i was in high school and i've never known it to be commercial free at all but you know it having brought that up i mean if i may digress a little bit uh um, it's kind I of only i raised it as a as a point like mm -hmm. is it is it requiring both sides or is it the fact that news programs are sort of competing for ad dollars and eyeballs like, you know, more entertainment based television content? Yeah. Well, I think that's that's part of the that's part of what we sacrifice when we allow uh, when we allowed commercials to uh, be put into the news. And uh, if you want to hear more information about this, by the way, everything I know in this particular case, I learned from Ralph Nader uh, listening to his podcasts. Um, but I guess I would say that um, that uh, allowing uh, when, once you allow commercials to go into the news, then you have uh, you know big business. Big business takes over, right? And, and I don't have any, I don't have anything against big business, but sometimes. Uh, it doesn't do the public much good if uh, you're trying to talk, tell a story about um, you know something that um, you know maybe the 757 Max or some bad news about that. But guess what? You know Boeing is one of your sponsors or something like that. You know there's an obvious um, conflict of interest there, and it's even getting into into NPR now. Where NPR uh, 
has gotten to the point where they have to accept donations from um, big corporations, but they always announce it, right? When they, when they do a news story, they'll say, hey, you know, we, we, General Electric is one of, our, uh, one of our sponsors or something like that. They still try to maintain that, that fairness about what they do, um, but it pollutes the news, in my opinion, and that, 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 that conflates news and entertainment. And, you know, then you get, you know, reality TV people that become presidents or something like that. You know, it, it, it becomes it becomes a big game show, in other words. And so, you know, local news, I live in St. Louis now. I was living in Los Angeles. St. Louis is actually a little bit better, I think, than Los Angeles, quite honestly, in terms of keeping out that um, entertainment value. Uh, Los Angeles was really bad about it, I thought. Um but this is my opinion. But anyways, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. There, there is an interference there. It, you can't have a news program that's critical of a company that's one of your advertisers. They will drop you, and then what? Then what happens? Yeah, I think we're also seeing some of that with. I mean, again, not a journalist, can't say for certain. This is how it appears from the outside. Uh, certain journalists or entire channels are unwilling to behave critically toward uh, usually politicians for fear of losing access to that person in the future mm -hmm. yeah. or information about them in the future. I don't know how you get around that conflict. That would seem to me to be inherent in the journalism profession. But at the same time, boy, do we ever need some of these ideas and facts and baseless claims challenged. And we got to find some way to do that. It's mm. a good point. Challenged in real time. And somebody yeah. calling a liar a liar. You know, I, I, would, I would just love to see that. You know, some reporter say to, you know, whether it's Trump or anybody else, when they start going down and giving, giving their normal line of BS to have a reporter stand up and say, frankly, sir, you're lying. You know, this is not true, and you know, it not, you know it's not true. Well, you know what happens in those situations, to your point, is they never get invited back to the press conferences, right? Or when, when, when you know, especially like when, when these presidential press conferences take place, and either the president or, or one of his spokespeople will be up there uh, calling on reporters, they're just not going to call on you. You know, if you're, gonna give them a, if you're not going to give them a softball question or something that they want to answer that furthers their story that they're trying to push out there, um, you simply won't get called upon. And I don't know, I, I, I'm with you. I don't know how to, I don't know how to solve that problem, honestly. I know it's a problem. I just don't know how to solve it. That's, uh, that's a, a structural question that uh, I'm not certain there's going to be an easy answer to that one. Yeah. Other than, I mean, the thing off the top of my head is some sort of support system for journalists that do take up that that role and are maybe in the doghouse for a little while. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know to what degree employers can be understanding of that or, or provide them more resources to make up for the loss of access or something like that. But yeah. it's that kind of behavior that I think needs to be rewarded more. And this is not the fault of any one person, but sort of the overall defunding of investigative journalism in favor of just rapidly reporting everything that's going on at a surface level. Yeah. Well, just reading that's out sort of the, the uh, economics of journalism 
right. not the morality of journalism, but at the same time, I think there's some pretty clear drawbacks to that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times the reporters do just read the talking points or they read the, um, yeah, the uh, the press releases. And, and, you know, that's because they're so underfunded, that's all they can really do. I'm not excusing them or anything like that, but I think you, there is a there is a reality to what you're saying there. I'm not excusing it either. I am understanding, though. It, yeah, it yeah, sucks I should to say, not yeah. have the ability to do the thing that you might really want to do. Yeah. How do we give that back to them? Um, yeah. It's not like the money doesn't exist. It's being used for other things. Maybe it's a budget reevaluation of some kind. Or maybe we need to look at uh, sort of regulations around media to figure out how can we make newspapers more independent. Not newspapers yeah. as in specifically the physical papers, but right. you know, newspaper level journalism. Yeah. That's a good point. And you know, local news is also disappearing as well, which is unfortunate. Um you know, in Missouri here, I think we're somewhat fortunate. There is a the Missouri Times, which is a uh, it's a fairly conservative newspaper, but they actually have reporters that sit in the Capitol and talk to our legislators and tell us what's going on. And like I say, they're conservative, so I have to take you know everything with that in, into account. But I'm very grateful for what they do. You know, and I'm not so sure that actually exists in there in, in every other state. You know, where people are actually paying attention. To not not only state level things, but but things are going on in your county, things are going on, you know, in your in your city. Um, I don't know how that, uh, how or why those uh, news outlets are disappearing. I suppose people like Ralph Nader could tell me all about it, but I I really don't know right offhand. Hmm. So, um, what do you think is going to happen? You know, given where we are right now, we've kind of talked about the background where all this, you know, how all the, what, what might be motivating people from, you know, motivating people to, you know, attack the Capitol building and and do so with a sense of righteousness. I mean, wh what what do you see happening over the next week or so? We're still not through the woods in this thing. I hear that there is going to be another gathering on January 17th or something like that. Or then you also have the, the inauguration on January 20th. Um there's a couple dates flying around uh, in the alt-right digital landscape. Uh, the 17th, the 19th, and the 20th mm -hmm. are all featuring prominently. I don't know if uh, one of those in particular will coalesce or if we might see actions on all three. But I do think it's extremely likely that in the next week to week and a half, we'll see some other kind of violence, whether it's at D.C. or perhaps distributed more more widely throughout the states. There were marches on state houses yeah. um, in addition to the DC protest this last time, uh, some of which were, did turn violent, but not yeah. deadly. Um, so we could see more of that. I think DC is more likely the focal point mm -hmm. without the president able to amplify it as much due to the loss of his Twitter account and other uh, media outreach. Mm -hmm. It's possible it will not be as big. However, I do think it's worth pointing out to the audience that the president's Twitter is not the be all and end all. There is a pretty robust 
sort of parallel social media universe mm -hmm. uh, where a lot of these folks are going to get the information just fine. Yeah. Um, that it's not going to be totally dependent on, on even Twitter as a whole necessarily. There are other platforms, other message boards, mailing lists, um, conservative yeah. podcasts, radio broadcasts, television. It will get to them. So I do think it's a risk. I hope that DC is better prepared this time around. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems almost certain at this point that the House will vote to impeach Trump again tomorrow, mm -hmm. which would be January 11th. I, 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 I do not think there's any indication that he's going to resign. It seems like Mike Pence and perhaps other members of the cabinet are unwilling to use the 25th amendment to remove him. Yeah. So it looks like we'll have an, another impeachment. I imagine the house will progress that vote very quickly. McConnell has indicated the Senate is not going to look at it until the inauguration. Mm -hmm. So it, it might be more of a um, might be to just kind of send a message rather than to actually remove him because it doesn't seem like the Senate will be able to right. to to do that or willing to do that at least this time. But well, I do think it's worth doing. Um, I think Chris Christie made the point this morning, and he's not the first person that if an inciting an armed insurrection against the government is not an impeachable offense, it's very yeah. difficult to imagine what else could be. Yeah, yeah. Well, so here we are. There is it, one one thing I do understand, and and um, I you know I'm totally not a constitutional scholar, and I can't quote it right now because I'm you know don't have the page in front of me, but uh, there is one advantage to having a um, an impeachment in that if he is impeached and convicted, uh, that may, depending upon how it's handled, uh, it may pre prevent that individual, in this case Trump, from seeking any other federal office. And I believe that's yes. actually written into the Constitution. So, but they, I, I would think they would have to reinforce that with the Articles of Impeachment. So, um, you know, if McConnell waits until after the um, um, after the inauguration of Biden, um, maybe there's still some sense in carrying that through if they have the stomach for it to say, okay, we're done with Trump completely. We'll not allow him to come back at all because once he's impeached, he's impeached. But it's unclear to me as to whether you can actually impeach someone who's no longer a president too. So, uh, or, or you can actually convict someone that's no longer a president, convict him in the Senate, that is. Um, well, my understanding you know. is that it's it's possible. I do agree with you there'd be value in doing it. Whether or not they're willing is... I think a very, very different question. Yeah. How do you think Josh Hawley would vote on that? <laughs> <laughs> I I can't even begin to speculate. Or Ted Cruz. From the series blind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'd be very interesting, you know, once Trump is out, whether he's out by, uh, whether he's impeached and prevented from coming back or not, um, it'd be very interesting for me to see what level of fealty they still um, give to him, you know, will they be that afraid of him? If he doesn't have access to Twitter anymore, um, then, um, they can't be afraid of his tweets. Although, you know, I think, you know, Trump's the kind of guy that he's, 
you can't knock him down. I mean, he's one of those guys that keeps coming back. And so he's not going to, he's not going to go away. Right. And so, um, he could still do a lot of damage if you wanted to, and he could still demand fealty to some degree. He could still do a lot of damage right now in his position of power in the presidency. I I do Mm -hmm. agree with a lot of, a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle who have said that, you know, impeaching the president in the final two weeks. Yeah, we have to, because two weeks is a long time. If you have a president who's willing to engage in this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think every legal means is worth pursuing given the risk. Mm -hmm. Very, I mean, five people are dead regardless of his, arguably criminal handling of the coronavirus mm-hmm. and uh, inability or unwillingness to provide relief to the states or coordinate a national response or, you know, him encouraging his supporters to drink bleach and take untested drugs and, mm-hmm. or not drink, excuse me, inject. Inject, um, yeah. There's a difference, yeah. you know. It may not kill Big you difference. if it gets injected, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, there's there's an argument for incompetence there. I, I don't think that even exists here, even if you wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, which I am not inclined to do on that particular topic. Mm-hmm. So uh, five people are dead directly from his encouragement. Yeah. And that's not even counting the, the COVID situation, which I think could have been an impeachment unto itself if we had a, a Congress that was more interested in its institutional power rather than its party power. Yeah, unfortunately, that would be a lot more difficult to prove. Um, I'm with you on that personally. I, I think that, um, again, my wife is tired of me saying this, but I, I think back and say, you know, in February, if Trump had done the right thing and said, hey, everybody, wear a mask. It's no big deal. Stick a piece of cloth in front of your face till we get this thing done and over with. And would have come down on the other side of this issue. A, um, I think a lot more people would have survived, honestly. I, th- I think it still would have been a pandemic, but you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know for sure, but I, I suspect a lot more people would have survived. And B, I suspect he would have been reelected, you know, because people would have said, hey, you know, he really did protect us. You know, he encouraged us all to wear a mask. Um, and just a proof of point right here, in St. Louis here, they've gone back and forth uh, for quite a while on masks. Uh, but for the last couple months, they've been saying, okay, St. Louis and St. Louis County and Jefferson County where I live, which is outside of St. Louis, now we all wear masks. And guess what? It's going down. You know, it leveled off and it's starting to go down. Now, even though we're, you know, we're, we're in the, even though the pandemic itself is is worse than it's ever been. Um, so yeah, masks make a difference, you know, and, and if someone like, if some, if Trump would himself have come down on the right side of this issue, um, I dare think he'd be the next president. He'd, he'd, he'd have another term. Yeah. It wasn't even an issue until he made it one. It yeah, was a simple yeah. public yeah. health recommendation until he turned it into a political symbol. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I don't know how credible it is, but there was multiple sources or see multiple news outlets reporting that Jared Kushner was originally in charge of some sort of national coronavirus response mm-hmm. and then dropped it allegedly because 
they got the data that it was hitting cities the hardest and cities are democrat run for the most part and Mm. so they decided that it would be uh, either he or someone else at the white house decided that it would be a better strategy to do what they wound up doing which is blame governors and blame mayors for botched or Mm -hmm. not botched just like an insufficient coronavirus response but then do nothing to actually help them and in fact by competing against them for ppe and other resources having the federal government bid against the states they drove up the prices and made it more difficult for them to acquire the the safety technology and resources that they needed and then turned around and wouldn't bail them out when their budgets went under it's it's well you could hardly beyond belief that yeah. it, it seems intentional and, and apparently it may have been. Yeah. I don't, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'd be sort of careful with that information because I don't really know, you know, what really took place. I, I do know there was a gross level of incompetence all around. And, um, it seemed like, it seemed like Jared Kushner was called upon to, you know, cure cancer. I mean, you know, figuratively speaking here, but you know, it's, it's, um, he's, a kid in my opinion and he's been you know I, i'm an old dude so i can say that and and he's uh doesn't know what he's dealing with and it's very obvious but um you know maybe there was this level of trust that trump put in him his son-in-law his family so he must you know he trusts him and that was that was more important at the point at that point than it was to actually handle things responsibly so um, yeah, I, I'd be careful I mean, with that with that rumor, but but it it why it's... would he be in charge of it instead of say a, a Fauci or another person who's got more experience in pandemic response? That well, because that's if, a great question. Well, if you my theory is that when you're when you're dealing with a megalomaniac or a narcissist, um, they don't want anybody to outshine them, you know. And you talked about earlier about you know injecting bleach, you know, when when Trump said that. And I constantly, I've watched that video several times. I look back and look at Deborah Burks's face, right? And there's this look on her face like, are you effing kidding me, right? But she didn't say anything, you know? And and that goes to the, to the root of the problem with, with this guy is that you cannot upstage him. You cannot look like you're better than him. And uh, if your family, it's, well, it's my family, right? So it's, you know, it's a part, it's an extension of him. But if it's someone on the outside, um, they either learn to shut their mouth or they're out. You know, and if you don't want to be out, you keep your mouth shut, even when the president talks about injecting bleach. So it's an attribute of his personality that I think really interfered with this. And uh, Jared Kushner was also involved or was also in charge of Middle, Middle East peace. Um, you know, talk about a problem that that takes an expert, you know. Uh, not a single expert, but maybe groups of experts to even begin to address the issues. Uh, and here it's all on one yeah. guy who's basically, you know, he, he, well, he's, he's a Jewish descent, so he's going to, you know, obviously um, that's a problem to begin with. I mean, and I'm not, you know, picking on his on his religion or anything like that, but it's all well, in the perception. For perception from the, right. the Arab and Palestinian side. Right. You know, uh, I think to tackle that issue, the perception of fairness from all parties involved is pretty key starting currency. I, you know, yeah. I'm not an expert in Middle East peace, but that seems self-evident to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, so I think that, you know, getting back to your point about Jared Kushner, I, I wouldn't doubt, you know, what you're saying is true, but, um, boy, that's a real cynical perspective too. So, um, you know, I, I remain a little bit doubtful about it, but, um, but, you know, it, when you're dealing with, with individuals that are known to do similar things, it's not outside the realm of possibility to at least consider it and investigate it. So, I mean, regardless of the motivation, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a possible explanation for what actually happened. Yeah. You know, what actually happened is we didn't have a national pandemic response. Yeah. The president and his allies did attempt to pin the spread of the virus on Democratic governors in New York, California. Yeah, that's not. Uh, And they did seem to resist public health recommendations at every turn and spread a lot of disinformation. And apparently they threw out the pandemic playbook that was handed to them by the previous administration. Uh, so that so we, was, we could speculate all day as to why yeah. it happened, but that it did happen, I, I think, is at least worth investigating. Yeah, absolutely. So well, maybe we will someday. Maybe we'll have some sort of coronavirus commission in the future. Oh, yeah. I I think that's that's a given. Um, I, I, I'm very confident that'll happen. I'd be extremely surprised if that doesn't happen. I mean, you know, we had this 9-11 commission, um, and this is, in terms of body count, this is, is many, many, many times more than the, than the loss of life on 9-11. Well, so, yeah, we're going to, uh, I'd be very surprised if some sort of a commission is not established, and this thing's going to be studied for another two or three decades before the final uh chapter of history is written about this well speaking of damage being done i guess a closing question for us Mm -hmm. the invasion of the capital by the mob seems to have laid bare a lot of divisions in the republican party as you mentioned Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people now finally breaking with trump who may have been more passively or silently opposed or perhaps did support him but have finally had enough uh, is is this a schism the Republican Party can survive in in the way that we would understand it to still be the same thing? Or is this mm. sort of a pivot point for them in one direction or another? And then what happens with the folks on the other half of that divide? Yeah. That's a really good question because, you know, it... Uh, on this podcast about a year ago right now, we talked to Lee Drutman, um, political scientist, and he wrote this, this book called The Doom Loop. And um, in the book, he cites the fact that the Republican Party was really two parties you know, back in the 1950s and early 60s, and the same with the, the Democratic Party. There was conservative and uh, liberal wings of both parties. And to a large degree, they functioned as four parties. Now they've sorted themselves so that they're now each just one party apiece. And so I guess what you're asking is, can the Republican Party live, go back to the schism that existed back in the 1950s? And I, I don't know. I can see one reason why they can't, because there's just too much water under this bridge. But on the other hand, starting a whole new political party at this point uh, it's really, really difficult because of the duopoly that they've set up. And we're discovering now with the Alliance Party, right? We're, we're trying to make ourselves known out there. Um, and that is an uphill battle. So um, if you were to ask me, 
I'd say, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? I think there's an overwhelming electoral reality, which which I think prohibits a lot of the political balkanization that you might expect given the divides within the country. And that is, if the Republican Party splits in half, you're not going to see another Republican or conservative or however that, that line breaks down. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get elected nearly as often as they currently do. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a first-past-the-post system, it is an extreme incentive to have one person or another. Dividing the race between two, three, or four people tends to disadvantage everyone involved because you need that that solid block of votes. Mm-hmm. And if that if one candidate has that solid block of votes, the other candidates need to figure it out because if they're splitting the vote between each other, neither of them is going to win. Yeah. So I think there's going to be some extreme incentives for them to figure out a way to get behind one candidate. It does seem, I'll admit, very difficult to imagine how that plays out. But I think it might still attempt to play out perhaps in the party uh, primary process, for instance, mm-hmm. for a considerably long time before there is any kind of official break. Yeah. Now, I could just be thinking more uh, more cautiously. Maybe the, the passions are such that they'll either disengage politically entirely or perhaps Trump supporters will form their own party and, and abandon the Republican Party altogether. I don't know... I mean, and I would say that that is even on the table. I normally wouldn't even say it's on the table. I would say that it is because a lot of the folks involved in that movement, including Trump himself, are not establishment political figures. And they may say, hey, if you're not going to get behind us, screw you. Mm-hmm. You're not going to win. So you better get behind us or else, essentially, and not worry about the political calculation there and just kind of go for it. Yeah. I could potentially see it playing out that way, but. It's just so uh, abnormal, I think, for American electoral politics that that's yeah. almost difficult to predict because you don't really have a lot of mm-hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of past information to make that prediction on. Yeah, and I think what you're alluding to also in there when you talked about first past the post type of of voting and and, and along with the the electoral system that we have these days, it really from a from a constitutional perspective forces us into a two-party system uh, there's so many there's so many reasons why it is this way and um and that being the case uh it may have to be a situation that the republican party is going to stay uh significant on the world stage or on the, on the nation on the nationwide stage that they're going to have to figure out how to resolve their differences or there's going to be a divorce, and it's going to be a question of okay, who gets to who gets to keep the house, sort of thing, you know, metaphorically speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's a that's that's a real difficult one. I mean, there, there are other things that are in play these days, which um, national popular vote is one of them, where um, they are so far pretty successful in signing up states to this agreement that says, hey, whoever wins the national popular vote will get all of our electoral votes. And they have been able to sign up enough states right now to come about 70 electoral votes short of the 270 that are required. I think Colorado was the most recent addition to to that club. Once they get to that point where they have 270 or more 
electoral votes from the states that sign up for this for this process, then um, the national popular vote will be used to determine the winner. And, and I'm not sure if that's a good way to go, but it certainly changes the equation somewhat. It gets us past this electoral system. It doesn't fix this first-past-the-post type of voting, uh, plurality voting that we have. You know, maybe we need things like ranked choice voting, uh, open top five primaries. And, th- and there's a lot of good ideas that are out there that can, that can help provide an on-ramp to other parties, including the Alliance Party, to um, become part of the national dialogue and give people more choices. Because right now we just have two. Well, that brings up a very interesting question, which is, uh, say the party does fracture, considering the percentage of the party that's supported all the actions of the last four to 12 years, you know, what what percentage of those voters, what uh, political opinions, in other words, would the Alliance Party be accommodating? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that's they've supported some, you know, certainly from the Alliance Party's perspective, some extreme things that go against some of our our founding platform stuff in terms of mm-hmm. uh, government integrity and fairness and uh, things like that. So do you think there is a not that, I'm, it's not that I'm saying the folks that are interested wouldn't be welcome? You absolutely would be. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's some some challenges there, which is. I, I could easily see a lot of Republicans leaving the Republican Party and not necessarily thinking they'd find a home here. Yeah. Versus perhaps creating their own path. Yeah. Or joining like libertarians. I think was it who's it? Jason Chavitz that did that? I don't remember his name anymore. The guy left. And it's also possible that the, the Trump supporters will be the folks that, that create the new party and the Republicans will stay where they're at. Yeah. Yeah, that's um that's a possibility too, um, but like I say, that's that is an uphill battle, um, and there may be this illusion too that if they that if they do do that, they they have this illusion that oh we'll take the base with us. At the end of the day, I'm not so sure that base is really big. They're motivated, but in terms of sheer numbers, uh, you yeah, you, it's hard to convince me anyways that seventy some odd million people who voted for Trump in this last election are all part of the base. I think a small portion of them are part of the so-called base, the you know the, the people that would storm the Capitol. Most of them are just rank-and-file um, conservatives, I would think. It's really bizarre because the Republican Party isn't conservative anymore, not by any stretch of the imagination, at least in my opinion. But There's um, a lot of political tradition and political momentum yeah. that goes behind that, and I'm yeah. Sure, there's a huge portion of that 70 million that's voted for Republican all their lives, and so everyone in their family and their parents' family, and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. That, if that's... that Republican label is off, what would they do? I think that's a very fair question because I don't know that it's been tested very well. Yeah. Well, if they are going to split, I hope that it is um, the the Trump Republicans that are the ones that get kicked out of the House. Uh, not not. Not House as in House representatives, but just out of the, out of the, uh, out from underneath the umbrella of the Republican Party. Uh, but I have to admit that that's more of a. I say it's more of a fantasy on my part at this point. I, I, I I'm just um, 
I don't know, man. This is one of those things where sometimes I can I can like see what's going to happen, and certainly it does happen. But this is one of those things that I have no clue how this is going to play out. I'm very interested in it, but I I just don't know how it's going to play out. Hmm. Well, one thing's for certain: this is going to be a very hair-raising next two weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, depending on how that impeachment vote goes, I think it could be a very interesting certainly unexpected beginning to the Biden presidency, but as tempting as it might be to like, okay, new president, let's try to get our agenda through. We can't waste the day kind of thing. Yeah. I'm kind of on board with you, Dan. I think the barring him from future office, setting a precedent, there is a lot of value there to pursuing this to its conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You say I, I don't know about the legal part of it too, uh, due to what due to what Mitch McConnell recently said about not even trying it in the Senate, essentially until after inauguration. Um, sounds to me like he's just running out the clock and hoping that it disappears. Yeah, that certainly seems like it, which I think is all the more reason not to let it. Personally, yeah. Well, that, I, might, that yeah. might not be the political calculation the Democrats go with. We'll see how it plays out pretty soon. Well, I this hope, is all going to yeah. happen so fast, one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, we could be talking a week from now, and we'll say, "Boy, were we idiots last week? We thought this was going right. to happen. <laughs> Something completely out of left field <laughs> came in." You know, it's a, I, I, politics is one of those things. You know, I, I'm an engineer by heart, and I can always sort of look at a system that I've designed and figure out, okay, it may fail, but these are the parameters within which it'll fail, and this is what we're going to do. And it's very predictable. That's what I like about engineering. But politics, I have, you know, sometimes I call it right, but um, yeah, sometimes I get it so wrong, I look like an idiot to my future self. So, <laughs> I think uh, at this point, with, with how volatile the situation is, I think there, there are so many different possibilities and ways that this could go. I, 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 I really don't think anyone can can accurately predict what's what's going to happen, which is both interesting and and a little scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I but, think so. Uh, yeah. Know. We're in it. We'll keep looking at it. Um, I think certainly, and you know, once this. Once this concludes, you know, Biden's actual first term political agenda, it's going to be very interesting to see unfold what his priorities are going to be in terms of COVID, energy, uh, changing our foreign policy. I imagine we'll we'll do quite a bit of that. There's a, from what I understand, there's a big backlog of, um, of, um, bills that are on sitting on McConnell's desk. So it's going to end up, mm-hmm. I guess, on um, the Democrats' desk uh, at some point, And hopefully those bills will start going through. Chuck Schumer's desk, I guess it's going to be. Do, do we know for sure he's going to be the uh, Senate leader? Um, I don't know if there's like an election that takes place. That I have no idea uh, how that works. No, I'm not exactly sure how that works. I, I think he is the presumed Senate leader, certainly. Yeah, they've been treating him that way in the news reports. But I'm like, <clears throat> I thought... I thought they have to go through some sort of a, a voting process or something like that. And cause I, I'd rather it not be him, but you know, I guess <laughs> it's better than what we have at this point. Who knows? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole other thing. 
Yeah. That's that's been so far out of my mind with everything <laughs> that's going on. You got to get your priorities yeah. together. Let's just get past this next two weeks, and then we'll worry about that later. But yeah. it's definitely going to be interesting in terms of you know neither party really having a veto-proof or not a veto, a filibuster-proof hold. Mm-hmm. It's literally split even yeah. aside from the tie-breaking vote. So I think we're going to see. Uh, either gridlock or compromise. There, there, there's really not going to be much middle ground there. And if it is compromise, I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of pork, mm-hmm. a lot of, of things like that to to keep an eye out for that I I think are pretty critical to our audience in terms of, um, you know, government integrity and I think passing clean bills is definitely should be part of that. Yeah. But uh, we will cover it. We will cover it for sure. I'm sure. Like I say, we're going to be talking about this again. And it's uh, if we talk about this again next week, uh, we'll have a whole lot more information to go on. So good. Well, you know, it's also equally possible next week we'll return to normal party business. That could also be a oh well. Speaking that could of also that, also be a possible uh, outcome if everything sort of proceeds apace. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I want my life to be boring for a while. Um, last week, I mean, last year was just, you know, it, it's a little bit off topic, but I was, I was just thinking just a couple of weeks ago, I said, wow, 2020, we actually impeached the president this year. That seemed like five years ago, you know, <laughs> remember that, that big explosion in Beirut too? I was, I was looking at that on the video and like, yeah. oh, that happened about 10 years ago. But no, that happened this year, just a few months ago. And <laughs> like, you know, the older you get, the faster your life goes. There's, there's no question about it, except for this year it went by very, very slowly for me. And I don't want it to go by that slow anymore. I'd rather have it go along at a good pace and just, you know, my life could be turn, return to being, you know, somewhat boring, not necessarily boring, but at least somewhat predictable and safe and not have to <laughs> cuss at the TV all the time or something like that. That would sure be nice. Yeah. Well, whatever your experience with the March of Time, thank you for tuning into the Alliance Party After Dark. Please consider subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. You can find us on iTunes, Google, and Spotify. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party and the Alliance Party perspective. Uh, definitely a little more Alliance Party focused than than we were this particular show, but I think the moment called for us to address what was going on nationally. Uh, keep in mind the podcast is a Twitter page at Alliance on Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might want to interview in another show, please drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. This show is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and otherwise alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents, provide a better future for our country. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. However, the views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect those of the Legal Alliance Party. This podcast is made possible by your donations and support. If you'd like to join us, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about. We'd love for you to get involved, volunteer your time, make a donation. We're looking for articles and blogs. And hey, if you want to run for office, we'd love to hear from you. I'm Greg from Philly, your host this evening for the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone, including Dan, the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and a hopefully, <laughs> to Dan's point, 
much more smooth and calming year uh, where everyone is safe and successful and you know we we don't fear for our lives nearly as often so wherever you are be safe be aware take care of yourself those around you take care of your families wear those masks and we'll see you guys on the next show <laughs>